Arizona Dreams, singing It's All Right Now and accompanying herself on piano. This is Historian-splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. And you can find these lectures on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and YouTube. And if you like them, if you want to hear more, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian-splaining. So this lecture will be about the later Crusades and their legacies. I left off in my lecture about the First Crusade, talking about the Crusaders' uh, bloody takeover of Jerusalem, their securing of the city with the victory at Ascalon, and the creation of a series of Crusader states in the Middle East, namely the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and the counties of Antioch, Edessa, and Tripoli, the last of which was a small county basically in what's now Lebanon. So these crusader states endured for several centuries afterward, and uh, subsequent crusades over about the next 250 years aimed at securing these uh, Latin Christian possessions in the Middle East, and usually recovering some part of that Christian territory that had been lost. So this, uh, there was a sort of constant uh, launching of crusades year after year, all through the 11 and 1200s. Uh, but the practice of crusading uh, evolved and became more of a sort of domesticated part of Western Christian life. Later Crusades were mostly not like the First Crusade. Really none was like the First Crusade in, in, in size, in zeal and religious fervor, and in success. Rather, later Crusades came more under royal control uh, most major armed expeditions to the Crusader states uh, had the participation of at least one king, queen, or emperor, sometimes all of the above. Uh, they were more tightly controlled by these royal authorities and also by the papacy and the church. They were not driven as much by popular passion. And they showed much greater observance of the accepted rules of war. So the First Crusade, as I described, was very brutal, especially in its later years as it approached Jerusalem. Uh, and the sort of brutality, the massacres of civilians, uh, the trickery, the entrapment that happened repeatedly in the First Crusade became much more unusual in later Crusades. Uh, and later crusades became something closer to the sort of model of chivalric warfare that social elites and the church uh, tried to inculcate in medieval Europe. The Islamic world showed a much more effective response uh, and used much uh, stronger counter strategies against the crusaders after 1100. So the First Crusade uh, largely took uh, the Turks and the Egyptians by surprise. Uh, the Crusaders were able to take advantage of uh, the Muslim state's lack of preparedness and their uh, divisions. 
that would shift gradually in the later Crusades, and you start to see more of an effective and concerted response uh, that rolls back the, uh, the Crusades. The Crusader states uh, were gradually lost bit by bit over the course of centuries, and important uh, losses included uh, the county of Edessa, in 1144, uh, Jerusalem, most significantly in 1187, uh, and Antioch, the sort of last major crusader holdout, uh, in 1268. The later crusades were not all failures. There were some successes, but there were more often than not defeats, and there were frequent total disasters. Uh, the problems with supplying the crusades remained uh, tremendous. Uh, it was very hard to keep uh, food and water flowing to, uh, to Frankish troops, uh, and uh, problems of thirst and starvation uh, continued to plague the Crusaders. Uh, also, disease became an increasing problem for the Crusaders. Uh, malaria and other uh, fevers and mosquito-borne illnesses probably all in all killed more crusading soldiers than combat did. Uh, this is often what happens in uh, warfare in tropical or just warm environments, is that large crowds of people succumb to disease even more than they do to combat. Uh, the problems of routing and supplying the uh, the crusading expeditions became even worse as time went on because the rift between the Franks and the Byzantines only grew deeper. So the sort of mistrust uh, and broken agreements that plagued the First Crusade were only the beginning. And uh, the Crusades actually ironically ended up driving more of a wedge between the Eastern and Western Christian worlds uh, than had been in place before. Uh, so ironically, the, the Pope's uh, aspiration of reuniting the Eastern and Western churches and uh, establishing Roman leadership throughout Christendom uh, completely backfired. So I'm going to go through uh, the sort of canonical numbered crusades and give a little description of what happened in each one so we can see how these forces uh, played out. Now, these numbered crusades were not the only crusades. It's very blurry and ambiguous exactly what you count as a crusade and what, uh, what you don't. Uh, the word itself did not come into usage until the later 1100s, so there were many expeditions that one could call a crusade, but that word wasn't used for them. Uh, and there was no absolute definite criterion demarcating, demarcating what was a legitimate crusade and what was not. Uh, the Pope could call for an armed pilgrimage and grant indulgences. Also monarchs, especially in later years, could call crusades uh, and launch crusades as well. Uh, and armed pilgrimages to the Holy Land happened uh, constantly through the 11 and 1200s. Uh, but historians, in retrospect, have picked out sort of the greatest hits of crusading, uh, the biggest and most noteworthy expeditions, 
and they, for uh, ease of reference, have given them numbers. Uh, so these are kind of the major expeditions that are interesting and consequential. But they were certainly not the only armed pilgrimages, and I'll, I'll talk about a couple of non-canonical ones uh, at the end. But uh, what historians have generally called the Second Crusade was launched uh, a little more than 50 years after the First Crusade, so about two generations later. And it was launched, as so many crusades were, because of the loss of important crusader territory. So in 1144, uh, Edessa was captured by the Turks. Uh, a report from uh, the crusader states, or from Outremer, as, as they generally called it, to the Pope in 1145 asked for help from Europe and this report also was the first known document to specifically mention Prester John. So you might remember Prester John from the lecture about the late Middle Ages. Uh, he was a sort of legendary, probably fictitious uh, Christian king of a large Christian kingdom somewhere far uh, to the east of Jerusalem. And this letter to the Pope in 1145 proposed that uh, another armed pilgrimage might be launched to recover uh, Edessa and protect uh, the territories in Outremer with an alliance with Prester John. And this sort of uh, thinking, this sort of wishful thinking, became uh, a kind of underlying constant through all the later Crusades. So the Pope uh, called for another armed pilgrimage, uh, much as uh, Urban II had back in 1095. And this call attracted uh, the support of King Louis VII of France, who was a very pious king, uh, as well as his wife, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was uh, the Queen of France, as well as the feudal ruler of a large section of southwestern France called Aquitaine, and Conrad III of Germany. So all three of these uh, royals uh, banded together and prepared to launch uh, a major expedition to the Holy Land. They passed through uh, Byzantine territory on their way to the Holy Land, much as the First Crusading Army had, and they were frequently harassed and diverted uh, by Turkish uh, raiders and attackers. And uh, the Crusaders strongly suspected that they were uh, the victims of secret collusion between the Byzantine Empire and the Turks, seeing as the Byzantines uh, at this point saw the Crusaders as more of a kind of alien threat rather than uh, an ally. So it's very possible that their, their way was slowed down by Byzantine-Turkish uh, collusion against them. The Crusaders, uh, their express purpose was to recapture Edessa, but they quite understandably recognized that, in fact, uh, the city of Damascus was much more important and that it was unlikely that they were going to be able to hold on to any territories around Syria if they didn't control Damascus. So they laid siege to Damascus, uh, but after not very long, uh, ran out of food and water 
and King Conrad of Germany simply abandoned and withdrew from the siege. Uh, at the same time, King Louis and Queen Eleanor of France uh, frequently clashed, with Eleanor favoring a more uh, aggressive uh, policy uh, towards uh, trying to capture Damascus or other territories around Syria, whereas Louis uh, distracted himself for a long period making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem rather than staying with the military expedition in Syria. So this sort of uh, quarreling and division within uh, the French contingent uh, weakened uh, the crusading cause, and Louis and Eleanor ultimately ended up boarding uh, separate boats back to France. Uh, and it perhaps it's not surprising that only a few years later, uh, Eleanor uh, sought to have her marriage with Louis annulled and instead married uh, King Henry of, of England. So this crusade may have uh, ended up uh, not only failing to retake Edessa or capture Damascus, but also probably contributed to the end of this royal marriage. The only success that we can point to in, in the Second Crusade from the European uh, standpoint was uh, when a contingent, an international contingent of fighters that gathered in England uh, set out by sea to the Holy Land and on their way stopped in Portugal and helped the small fledgling kingdom of Portugal to capture the city of Lisbon. Uh, so this was uh, one of the first times that the crusading cause was diverted from the Holy Land to instead uh, a European target uh, and began to uh, contribute its energy and resources instead to the reconquest in Spain and Portugal instead of uh, Outremer. So the Second Crusade, in ter at least in terms of the Holy Land, was a total dud. And in the meantime, a new uh, Islamic uh, power came onto the scene that would begin the real ultimate undoing of the Crusader states. So in the year 1171, uh, a general in the employ of the Fatimid Sultanate in Egypt named Salah ad-Din Yusuf, seized power for himself and made himself uh, Sultan uh, of Egypt. So he, he ended the Fatimid dynasty and placed himself in power as Sultan. Uh, Salah ad-Din Yusuf, or Saladin as, as Europeans uh, called him, was a political and military genius. He very quickly consolidated power in Egypt and also engineered a similar coup in Syria, which allowed him to unite uh, Egypt and Syria under his own hands, uh, under his own rule, and use these territories to encircle the Crusader states and begin squeezing them uh, out of existence. So uh, for about 80 years, the Islamic world had made no effective uh, counterattack on these uh, crusader kingdoms in the Middle East. Uh, but Saladin was the first who was determined to, uh, to roll back this Western Christian incursion into uh, Muslim territory. Uh, 
uh, Saladin, uh, much like Charles Martel, presented himself as a defender of his religion. So if you remember, Charles Martel uh, the, uh, was the mayor of the palace of the Frankish Empire in the 700s. He uh, effectively uh, defended this Christian empire against an Islamic invasion of Europe and using that legitimacy was able to present himself uh, as a sort of defender of the faith and make himself king to depose his own ruler and uh, replace him as king. Very similarly, uh, Saladin does the same in a kind of almost mirror image uh, process, makes himself, rises from vizier uh, to sultan, and presents himself as a kind of leader of the Islamic world. Saladin's capture of Jerusalem in 1187, of course, sends psychological shockwaves through Europe. Uh, The Pope presents this disaster as a punishment for the sinfulness of the European uh, Christian people. And naturally, he calls for a crusade, a penitential war. Uh, as a way for Europeans to atone and uh, show penance for their sinfulness that led to the fall of Jerusalem. This uh, crusade, in beginning in 1189, attracts uh, Frederick Barbarossa, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Henry II of England, who uh, at this point now is the husband of our friend Eleanor of Aquitaine, and Philip II of France. Henry of England dies very soon after taking the cross. So his role on the crusade then is taken up by uh, by his son, who is the son of, of Henry and Eleanor of Aquitaine, named Richard. So Richard I of England sets out uh, on crusade along with Philip II of France and uh, Frederick Barbarossa, the Holy Roman Emperor. So we can see here uh, crusading is becoming a kind of family business. Certain royal families are taking it up uh, repeatedly as a sort of mark of their uh, of their worthiness to rule. Most of the crusading contingents travel uh, through Hungary and into the Byzantine Empire, much like the First Crusade did. Frederick Barbarossa, the Holy Roman Emperor, accidentally drowns after falling off his horse in a river. So the imperial throne is now vacant, and the imperial throne is elective, as I mentioned before. So suddenly a sort of power struggle uh, ensues for who will succeed Frederick Barbarossa, and most of the German soldiers who have been recruited from the Holy Roman Empire quickly desert and head back uh, to Germany to bolster the power of their various local uh, rulers and lords in this uh, imperial power struggle. So the German contingent is mostly gone after the death of Frederick Barbarossa. Richard I and uh, Philip II of France continue on to the Holy Land to try to uh, retrench the uh, Frankish control over the remaining crusader states and recapture Jerusalem. Philip II of France doesn't stay for very long. He's not very enthusiastic about the crusade, as it turns out, 
And so pretty quickly, Richard I of England becomes the main leader of this crusade. This is the Richard who later becomes known as Richard the Lionheart. He's the one who is worked into the premises of the Robin Hood stories as we know them. Uh, and the crusade becomes in large part a sort of face-off between Richard I and Saladin, right? And it happens that these are probably two of the most brilliant and most determined military commanders of the entire uh, medieval era. The contest between them comes to be seen in chivalric terms as a kind of uh, noble power struggle between two worthy adversaries. And both of these men, Richard and Saladin, uh, come to be held up as sort of paragons of virtuous leadership, both in their respective societies and also uh, in Europe. Saladin comes to be seen as kind of the the worthy and respectable uh, Muslim opponent. Richard uh, besieges Acre, an important uh, city in the kingdom of Jerusalem that had been captured uh, by Saladin's forces. He, uh, during the siege of Acre, there are attempts at diplomacy between Richard and Saladin. Uh, messages and gifts are exchanged but uh, the two men never meet in person. Uh, Saladin considers that to be diplomatically improper. The negotiations break down, and we see both sides kill prisoners that they have, uh, civilian prisoners that they have captured over the course of the siege. So uh, again, we see you know, mass violence towards civilians breaking out again as in the First Crusade, but it does not reach the same scale. Richard succeeds in recapturing Acre, as well as Jaffa, another uh, important city on the coast of Palestine. And so uh, the Crusaders successfully reestablish Frankish control over the coast. They try repeatedly to uh, attack and recapture Jerusalem itself, but the weather and other conditions are never favorable. And so finally, Saladin and Richard negotiate uh, a treaty which uh, leaves the Muslim Sultanate in control of Jerusalem, but it guarantees the rights of Christian pilgrims and merchants to travel peaceably to Jerusalem. In this way, the Third Crusade is uh, a sort of successful failure, you might say. It does not achieve the great goal of recapturing Jerusalem, but it does uh, make significant progress in shoring up, uh, ensuring up the Crusaders' power in the Middle East and ensuring that the Crusader states will be a long-lasting presence in Middle Eastern uh, in the Middle Eastern world, not a mere uh, generational blip. The failure to retake Jerusalem, of course, leaves the possibility open for more crusades. In 1202, uh, the Pope and his allies call for another crusade 
with the hope of retaking Jerusalem via Egypt. So this is the first time that Crusaders start to look at uh, their strategy differently and to basically uh, uh, try to land in North Africa and move east to the Holy Land rather than relying on passing through Byzantine territory, which is simply not working out well. The leaders of the crusade uh, have very high hopes that they will gather tens of thousands of men, that their uh, expeditionary force might even rival uh, the first crusade in terms of size and power. But they know that they will need a lot of sea transport and a lot of supplies. They commission Venice uh, to transport the crusading expedition to Egypt to begin this crusade. However, only a fraction of the men and money that they expected ever shows up. So uh, they basically uh, owe a tremendous debt to the city of Venice. Uh, they have, Venice has poured tremendous resources and time and labor and money into building up a fleet, a crusading fleet, to transport these armed pilgrims. Uh, but now the crusaders can only offer about a third of the cost that they promised to pay. So the crusaders are in a very tight spot. And Venice is not happy. And Venice has tremendous leverage now to make demands upon these crusaders if any sort of crusade is going to happen at all. The uh, doge of Venice, the ruler of Venice at this time, was an old blind man named Dondolo. And Dondolo decided to take advantage of this situation and basically proposed that the Venetians could uh, transport the crusaders and forgive this enormous debt that they incurred if they will make a little side errand on the way to the Holy Land. So they asked the crusaders to divert temporarily to the city of Zara on the Adriatic Sea, which is a port city that had been under Venetian rule, but had recently defected and transferred its loyalty to the Kingdom of Hungary. And they asked the Crusaders to basically besiege and threaten Zara and force them to come back under Venetian uh, domination. The Crusaders reluctantly agree to this deal, but when the Pope finds out, he promptly excommunicates them all. Uh, it was strictly forbidden for Crusaders to attack fellow Catholics. Uh, that was completely contrary to the whole idea and purpose of the Crusade. Uh, and Zara was a Christian city under Christian rule. So the, uh, so the papacy excommunicates all of them. The leaders find out about this excommunication, but they don't tell the other Crusaders. They conveniently leave this information uh, secret. Once this has taken place, the Crusaders uh, set out on their way, supposedly to proceed to Egypt uh, to begin their actual uh, crusade towards the Holy Land. But they are still pretty short on men, money, and supplies. And uh, Venice 
understandably is still not entirely satisfied because even with this expedition to Zara, it's still, they're still taking a significant loss. So another plan, another scheme uh, comes into play after the crusade uh, leaves Zara. One of the crusading princes uh, before the fleet had left Venice actually uh, broke away and instead went to visit Schwabia, uh, where he had relatives in Germany. We don't know exactly why, but he in Schwabia, he came into communication with Alexios Angelos, who was a Byzantine prince who had fled from the Byzantine Empire to Schwabia to look for help. So Alexios Angelos's father, Isaac, had previously been emperor but Isaac had been overthrown and removed from power by blinding. Remember this in the same way that uh, Irene and her allies had removed her son from the imperial throne by blinding. Uh, so the same thing had happened to this emperor Isaac. So Alexios Angelos wanted to restore his father Isaac to the imperial throne and to overthrow the usurpers. Uh, Alexios Angelos promised the crusaders ships, money, uh, guides, and all kinds of uh, very substantial assistance in return for helping him to overthrow the Byzantine emperor and restore his father Isaac, whom he believed to be the rightful emperor. The crusaders accept this deal. They basically say, well, Zara worked out for us well enough. So why not go all the way and uh, help this uh, refugee prince in his mission to Constantinople? So the fleet rounds Greece and goes to Constantinople. They occupy the city. They successfully restore Isaac to the throne in the year 1203. And naturally, they demand uh, the payment and ships and rewards that they had been promised by Alexios Angelos. Not surprisingly, a popular uprising began in January 1204, as the people of Constantinople said, we're not going to pay these enormous fees to these foreign uh, interlopers. Uh, we completely repudiate this corrupt bargain that you made. So a popular uprising uh, basically seizes the emperor and the prince, seizes control of the city, and refuses the repayment of these uh, debts to the crusaders. In response, the crusading force sacks Constantinople, looting the city of its money and its art, uh, stealing all sorts of holy Christian relics, uh, which really were the main, you know, most valuable booty that crusaders ever got, uh, from Constantinople or the Holy Land uh, was uh, Christian relics. They set fires and massacred civilians uh, as uh, retribution for the breaking of this promise that they believed that the Byzantine Empire had made to them. Ultimately, the Crusaders overthrow the imperial government. They install one of their own leaders uh, as emperor, and they create the so-called Latin Empire, a sort of new state 
uh, ruling what had been the Byzantine Empire in Greece and the Balkans. This Latin Empire lasts until the year 1261, when uh, Byzantine loyalists were able to retake Constantinople. But uh, the Byzantine Empire certainly never recovers to the level of, of wealth or power that it had seen before 1204. So the Fourth Crusade naturally is uh, a big embarrassment <laughs> and uh, a disaster. Uh, the main beneficiaries are Europeans who are interested in those uh, holy relics, which now come flooding into Western Europe, where they had previously been in uh, Constantinople. And it finally puts the nail in the coffin of any hope of reconciliation between the Eastern and Western churches. Uh, you now, uh, the, the schism now is truly a schism and there is long-lasting animosity between Greeks and Latins over the disaster of the Fourth Crusade. The Fourth Crusade never makes it to the Holy Land. Uh, these distractions completely consume them. Not surprisingly then, uh, a Fifth Crusade is called for in 1213 with the same basic idea of landing in Egypt and using Egypt as a base to then invade eastward into uh, the Holy Land. This Fifth Crusade attracts uh, King Andrew of Hungary, who sets out on an armed pilgrimage with 20,000 soldiers. Uh, so this is the largest royal army that was ever engaged in a crusade. Uh, King Andrew and his allies land in Egypt and successfully capture the city of Damietta on the Egyptian coast near the Nile Delta. The crusaders also complete, uh, they form an alliance with the Sultanate of Rum which attacks Syria from the north at the same time. So remember the Sultanate of Rum is that Turkish kingdom in Anatolia near Constantinople. They had been actually the first enemy that the Crusaders fought as they uh, made their way towards Jerusalem in the First Crusade. So we might think of the Crusaders and the Turks as enemies, but in fact uh, this alliance with the Sultanate of Rum in 1213 shows that uh, the Crusaders uh, were not thinking necessarily in terms of a clash of civilization of Muslims versus Christians. They were thinking in terms of who controls Jerusalem and what do we have to do strategically in order to capture and hold Jerusalem. And they were very willing to make alliances across all kinds of religious lines in order to achieve that uh, objective. So this is the first uh, really significant alliance that crusading forces make with a Muslim state. And, it, and ironically enough, it's with the Sultanate of Rum. So the, uh, the crusaders try to attack southward towards Cairo and eastward towards Palestine at the same time that the Turks of Rum attack Syria from the north. 
they aren't able to make much progress. They never uh, come anywhere close uh, to, uh, to capturing the cities and fortresses that they wanted. And during the sort of stalemate where the, uh, the Crusaders are basically stuck in Damietta, Francis of Assisi, the traveling uh, friar and holy man, actually uh, traveled to Damietta and arranged a meeting with the Egyptian Sultan Kamil with the hopes of persuading the Sultan to hand over Jerusalem peaceably and possibly of persuading the Sultan to convert to Christianity. Uh, so this is one instance in which Francis of Assisi's uh, uh, reach exceeded his grasp. Uh, he was not able to uh, move the Sultan on this point but it is remarkable that he, he reportedly had a very respect, uh, respectful and diplomatic meeting uh, with the Sultan and hoped to resolve uh, this crusading conflict peaceably. When uh, the Sultan uh, refused Francis of Assisi's overtures, uh, the army marched again southward to Cairo, uh, failed to take the city initially, and then, while besieging the city, again ran out of supplies and pulled out, much as had happened with, uh, with Damascus uh, many years earlier. Very quickly after the failure of this Fifth Crusade, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II launched a Sixth Crusade. So Frederick II was, uh, he was Holy Roman Emperor at this time in the 1220s, and he had taken vows and agreed to go on the Fifth Crusade, but later pulled out because of practical and political problems. So he had sort of a, a mark of guilt on him because he had failed to carry out his crusading vows, and he actually was excommunicated uh, by the Pope. And the supposed reason for his excommunication was his failure to follow through on his crusading vows, but also he was engaged in a long political power struggle with the papacy in the empire, which probably was the real reason that the Pope had excommunicated him. Uh, Frederick II was a very daring, unconventional person. Uh, he wasn't afraid to break the accepted rules and to uh, buck convention, to, to put it mildly. And he set out on 1229 to sort of make amends on his failure to join the Fifth Crusade. He landed in the Crusader states in the Holy Land, and rather than engaging in battle, he uh, opened negotiations with the uh, Sultanate, overstated and overrepresented the power of his forces, and through uh, careful political maneuvering, he was able to make an agreement with the Egyptian Sultanate, which handed him control of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and the other Christian holy cities for 10 years. Uh, he also made a deal that his sister would marry the Sultan in uh, as, as a way of sort of diplomatically sealing this agreement. Frederick II had very good luck in that at the time that he was negotiating uh, this, uh, this arrangement with Egypt, the Egyptian rulers were also busy trying to suppress a rebellion in Syria. 
So, uh, so the they were the Sultanate was in a very uh, vulnerable position at the moment, which Frederick II skillfully took advantage of. This deal was <laughs> remarkable and still sounds pretty shocking all these years later that the Sultanate peaceably agreed to give Jerusalem back to Crusaders for a period of 10 years and that all of this was arranged without fighting. Uh, much of Europe was, was shocked and really confused by what had happened. The Pope lifted Frederick's excommunication, which he more or less had to do because uh, Frederick had followed through on his vows and not only that but had at least temporarily succeeded where the four previous crusades had all failed. Uh, however, it also probably irked the Pope that, uh, that Frederick had demonstrated that skill, political, diplomatic acumen could achieve this goal uh, more quickly and effectively than, than warfare, and it more or less um, undercut the entire idea of armed pilgrimage uh, and penitential warfare as a way of capturing Jerusalem. Subsequent crusades after the success of the Sixth Crusade, or partial success of the Sixth Crusade, subsequent crusades were royally led, not papal. Uh, so remember, in the 1200s, this is a time, uh, it's, it's the High Middle Ages, it's a time when royal governments are increasing in power and prestige, and they are now beginning to eclipse uh, the papacy, even in this expressly religious matter of crusading. The Crusaders held uh, the Kingdom of Jerusalem until 1244. It was again lost to Muslim forces, and in 1248, a Seventh Crusade was called, or what we call the Seventh Crusade was called. It was led principally by Louis IX of France, who was a very uh, uh, respected, powerful king who was consolidating royal power in France. And he uh, led an expedition to Egypt, which again captured Damietta for a period of time. But uh, not long after the, uh, the Muslim forces actually captured Louis himself and ransomed him uh, back to the French, which was, uh, again, the customary thing to do in medieval warfare was to try to capture your enemies and ransom them. After Louis was ransomed, he actually uh, made an alliance with the Egyptian army. So at this time, the Sultanate in Egypt had a slave army called the Mamluks, uh, which were composed of slaves and former slaves largely taken from the Middle East and the Caucasus region, uh, the Black Sea area, and they didn't have any great loyalty to the Sultan. So uh, Louis made an alliance with the Mamluks against the Sultan, which over time, several years later, helped the Mamluks to overthrow the Sultan and seize power in Egypt and Syria. By that time, however, uh, the Crusader outpost at Damietta had, had been abandoned, uh, since it was simply not an effective post for proceeding east to 
to the Holy Land without controlling Cairo. The Eighth Crusade was launched in 1269 uh, in response to another uh, sweeping Islamic victory in the Middle East. So the Sultan Baibars, who was uh, himself a Mamluk and was now part of this uh, sort of Mamluk dynasty ruling in Egypt, uh, was another great military and political genius, much like Saladin, but probably, or at least arguably, greater uh, than Saladin. Uh, Baibars, uh, after coming to power, uh, defeated the Mongols in their attempt to invade Egypt, and rapidly went on a string of campaigns recapturing most of Outremer. Baibars captured Antioch, in 1268, which was probably the next most important political and religious capital for the Crusaders uh, after Jerusalem. So the following year, Louis IX decided to uh, give crusading another go. And rather than landing at Egypt, uh, which was uh, swampy, frequently flooding, uh, and just a very difficult base of operations, he instead decided to direct the crusading force to Tunis in what's now Tunisia, uh, thinking that that would form a sort of usable uh, base of operations to then proceed eastward through the Mediterranean to the Holy Land. Well, uh, dysentery quickly swept through uh, the crusader army, killing many of the soldiers and finally killing Louis himself. So Louis IX uh, died uh, during this ill-fated uh, crusade at Tunis. He later was canonized and is known as Saint Louis and is the patron saint of France and of hairdressers. Very soon after the failure of the Eighth Crusade, a Ninth Crusade was launched, led mainly by Prince Edward of England. Uh, so Prince Edward had participated in the Eighth Crusade, and some people actually consider the Ninth Crusade to just be part of the Eighth Crusade, but, you know, numbering, you can do it however you want. Uh, but Prince Edward of England had taken part in this failed crusade in Tunis. He withdrew with his forces, proceeded to Acre in, uh, in what remained of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and he won some significant victories uh, against Baibars, in the area around uh, the remaining kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, so a pretty impressive feat uh, to win uh, any sort of military successes against uh, Baibars. Edward also, in his struggle against Baibars in 1271 and 72, made an alliance with the Mongols. So <laughs> the Mongols were, of course, this gigantic uh, marauding horde of Central Asian fighters that had taken over most of Eurasia at this point. And uh, Edward agreed to press uh, Baibars's territories from the west while the Mongols coordinated their attacks from the east. Uh, and this contributed to his regaining of some territory for the Franks. However, uh, the main problem for Edward was that he could not unite feuding factions within Outremer. 
So by this time, you had different families claiming the different thrones of the different counties. You had different uh, claimants asserting their right to the crown of Jerusalem in exile, even though they didn't control Jerusalem at this time. And it was just about impossible to actually make a concerted uh, attack by the Franks against, uh, against Baibars and the, the Mamluks. So in exasperation, Edward simply made a 10-year truce uh, with Baibars and withdrew back to England. The Mongol leader, Abaka, who was the, the Mongol governor of Persia, actually uh, was a bit disappointed and several times afterwards wrote to Edward and the Franks asking for more crusades, since from their point of view, more crusading was to their benefit. But no more significant armed expeditions uh, materialized. It's possible that Edward hoped to launch uh, another expedition, but it never happened. There was increasing harassment uh, of pilgrims, of Western Christian pilgrims who had generally been allowed to continue making pilgrimages to Jerusalem, uh, but Turks uh, and Mamluks became more and more hostile to Western Christians. Uh, in 1291, a skirmish broke out between a group of Western pilgrims and a group of uh, raiders on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, this skirmish uh, ballooned into a small war, which led the Mamluks to uh, attack and capture Acre, the last remaining uh, holdout of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Uh, the other uh, counties, of course, Antioch, Edessa, Tripoli had already been lost, uh, and Arwad, uh, a small island on the coast of Syria, was the, la uh, the last Frankish holdout to fall uh, in 1303, and after that only uh, Cyprus uh, remained as a crusader state. So the Ninth Crusade is the last traditionally numbered crusade. It was the last uh, concerted, organized, armed expedition launched with the hope of either strengthening the Crusader states or recapturing Jerusalem. As I said, there were many other smaller expeditions and movements that could also be called Crusades, and sometimes in the 1200s were called Crusades. Some of them have been overlooked by history, some of them have been the opposite, have been overblown and distorted uh, and have become sort of part of popular myth. Uh, an important one is the so-called Children's Crusade in 1212. So you may have heard the story uh, before that, uh, that in this year, large crowds of children uh, gathered around Europe, set out on the roads to uh, the Mediterranean ports with the hope of uh, setting out for the Holy Land and fighting a crusade which would succeed where adult crusades had failed because they were children and hence were innocent uh, and could not be defeated by uh, the Muslims. But uh, this crusade, of course, uh, failed. They had no money and the children simply ended up uh, languishing or being captured and sold into slavery in the port cities uh, of Italy. So that's the basic outline of the story that materialized in uh, about the 1230s or so. Uh, 
and that has been passed down and repeated many times since. This is mostly false. That, that is not really what happened. Uh, in the year 1212, there, two, there were two popular movements uh, of self-organized pilgrims, uh, mainly in France and Germany, that did gather a large number of people who then traveled to the port cities of, of Italy. It is also true that at least some of the participants, including some of the preachers who led this uh, pilgrimage movement, were children, or at least were people that we today would consider children. So young uh, teens and preteens, 12 and 13 year olds, who at that time were considered sort of youths uh, or adolescents, but we today uh, might call them uh, children. However, most of the participants in this movement were not children. Uh, they were teenagers and adults of various ages. It is likely that some early chroniclers referred to them as children because they were mostly low-class peasants and uh, your sort of you know, most elitist clergy would tend to refer to all peasants and poor people as children, even if they were actually adults. It was not really an armed military expedition. Rather, it was a popular movement of people who hoped to go to the Holy Land and look for the true cross. Again, the main treasure that crusaders sought out was uh, holy relics. So they hoped to go to the Holy Land and find the true cross and hopefully convert the Muslims in the Holy Land to Christianity. Uh, again, uh, a similar ambition to, to Francis of Assisi. Stories have been told about this children's crusade, such as the notion that they thought that the sea would part for them when they arrived at ports and that they would be able to simply walk like Moses uh, across the sea to the Holy Land. That's, that's not true. That's just a notion that was made up later. Uh, it's also probably not true that they were sold into slavery. Uh, rather, there was an active labor market and a demand for labor in cities like Genoa and Venice uh, on the Italian coast. And those who didn't return home largely found jobs, found employment. That's probably a large reason why the movement happened in the first place, was that it was a way for people to, um, to get to an area where there, was, there were more opportunities. If you were uh, impoverished and didn't have a clear place in society where you were in France or Germany, you could travel to Italy. So the story of the Children's Crusade has been tremendously distorted and exaggerated, if not outright fabricated because, mainly because uh, initially, those who described this movement were from the social elite, mainly of the church, and this movement, this pilgrimage movement, did not have official sanction. It was not encouraged or approved of by the church, and so it was described in sort of derogatory terms as foolish, naive, unrealistic, and uh, a sort of tragic failure. Uh, and this sort of caricature of the movement was then taken up and uh, repeated later by more 
uh, modern and, and secular commentators to show the sort of uh, fanaticism and delusion of medieval people and of crusading in general. So uh, that's largely why we've ended up with this myth of, of the children's crusade. Uh, but as we can see, if we look uh, if we look at the actual history of crusading according to uh, the best sources we have, we can see that uh, as crusading became a regular repeated activity in European life, it became more regularized. It became more uh, overseen by certain established political authorities. It began to conform more to the norms uh, of warfare at that time. It sometimes sought out peaceful resolution when uh, military expeditions repeatedly failed, and it remained focused very closely on the specific goal of control of Jerusalem. Right. So there are all sorts of choices that crusaders might have made differently. Uh, they might have tried to take larger, wealthier cities or countries. They might have organized themselves differently. Uh, they might have simply stopped these repeated failed expeditions, which drained men and money out of Europe, if they hadn't been committed specifically to the goal of controlling the city of Jerusalem. That was the religious object of these crusades, with the very large and significant exception of the Fourth Crusade, which sacked uh, Constantinople. That expedition was pretty quickly diverted to completely different ends, uh, which offered more rewards in terms of money, uh, territory, and holy relics. Uh, and it did so unexpectedly and opportunistically. Uh, and it also did so while under excommunication. So it was without the approval of the sort of recognized religious authorities in the Latin West. But uh, in this way, the, the Fourth Crusade is sort of uh, the, the exception that proves the rule. Uh, it was a crusade that went awry from the point of view of the express purposes of crusading as a practice, which were acted out over and over again in all of these other crusades, both the other eight crusades and countless other crusades that took place in between. So why does this long series of failed uh, expeditions to the Holy Land matter? Well, in some ways this, uh, this question needs no answer because we still keep talking about the crusades. They keep re-entering uh, our political conversations, the way we see religion, the way we see Christianity and Islam, the way we see European imperialism. Uh, they can be trotted out over and over again as a sort of artifact for one or another uh, political argument. But uh, first, we have to understand the, the real nature and the real legacies of the Crusades themselves before we try to throw them around as a symbol. Uh, the first significant legacy of the Crusades was simply the Crusader states, a long-lasting Latin Christian presence was established in the Middle East. Uh, 
To this day, you can find people who are descended from crusaders, not only in Cyprus, but in Turkey, Lebanon, Israel, and Palestine. Uh, there are English and French names that you can find uh, in the Lebanese population, for instance. You can see crusader art and architecture, the Holy Sepulchre, the Croc de Chevalier, a great uh, hospitaller castle uh, in, in Syria. Uh, in all of these ways, uh, the Latin West made uh, a, a lasting mark on the landscape, the society, and the makeup of uh, the Middle East. In the opposite direction, uh, the Latin West was exposed to art, architecture, practices, technology of the Middle East. Uh, this can be easily exaggerated. Um, in fact, uh, far more ideas and uh, funds of knowledge were gained from the reconquest of Spain and Portugal than were gained from the Crusades in, in the Holy Land. But still, uh, you can see uh, Gothic architecture, which developed first in France in the 12th century and spread outward through Europe, was influenced by the Islamic architecture that Western people saw in the Crusader lands. Uh, also, Greek influences in art and architecture made their way into, uh, into Western Christian uh, culture as well. Uh, the Templar churches, this is the first time I've used the word Templar, I'll talk about them later, but uh, the Templar churches uh, that are dotted all across Western Europe imitate uh, the Greek form of church, uh, and in, in other ways, uh, Eastern life uh, made its mark on uh, Western Christendom as people traveled back and forth between Europe and Outremer. Another significant lasting legacy of the Crusades was the Crusading Orders, and I, I haven't talked about them in this lecture, but I will uh, later. So uh, the Crusades gave birth to a totally new institutional form, uh, a celibate chivalric brotherhood, uh, a, a fraternity of knights who take religious vows, including vows of celibacy, and commit themselves to, uh, to pilgrimage, to protecting uh, pilgrims and protecting the Crusader states. Uh, the Templars, the so-called Templars, were the first. Others followed soon after. Uh, knights Hospitaller, uh, Teutonic Knights. And these orders would come to have tremendous wealth and power within Europe. Uh, so the, the practice of crusading gave rise to new groups and institutions that then exercised power uh, within Europe. And in this way, again, the Crusades come home. Also, simply, the idea of crusading uh, enters into Western Christian life. Uh, the notion of penitential warfare, uh, of an armed pilgrimage as a way of carrying out uh, combat in a pious Christian way, uh, was applied to various other sorts of wars and campaigns. Firstly, within Europe. So as I mentioned when I was talking about the Second Crusade, uh, crusading 
ideas as well as men and resources end up getting diverted from the Holy Land to the Reconquista in Spain and Portugal. And soon uh, the papacy actually declares uh, the reconquest against the Moorish uh, emirate in Spain to be another crusade. Also, at the same time, uh, the German conquests eastward and northeastward into Lithuania and the Baltic countries was also declared a crusade. Uh, this was unique at the time because Lithuania was not Muslim, but it was pagan. And, and so the idea of crusading starts to uh, expand to include any sort of campaign to Christianize uh, an area that, for some reason, uh, they believe ought properly to be Christian. Uh, the Portuguese expansion that starts in the 1300s also comes to be seen as a kind of crusade, although the papacy doesn't necessarily describe it as such. People who participate in Portuguese overseas expansion also see themselves in a way as crusaders. Uh, so Portugal, after 1400, begins to conquer uh, outposts in North Africa with the hope of expanding eastward to the Holy Land, much as Louis IX tried to land in Tunisia and conquer east to Jerusalem. So the Portuguese, uh, when they begin their conquests in Morocco, have the same sort of idea. And Prince Henry the Navigator of Portugal uh, wants to take part in this sort of grand crusading uh, enterprise, and that's why he begins to fund Portuguese expeditions down the coast of Africa. It's why Portuguese sailors end up discovering lands in the Atlantic, like the Azores and Cape Verde, and why they eventually round Africa to Asia, is because they want to fund and uh, keep alive this great crusading mission, and they want to find Prester John. They still have this hope of finding a Christian king in the East who will ally with them against the Islamic powers. Many people who take part in the Spanish conquests of the Americas uh, also see uh, those conquests as crusades. So Cortez's uh, uh, expedition in Mexico and Pizarro in Peru uh, and the Spanish explorers and conquistadores in the Caribbean uh, all of them see themselves in some way as crusaders, and some Spanish explorers actually uh, described American uh, life, and they called American temples uh, mosques, and they referred to the Indians sometimes as Turks. Uh, and in this way, they, they saw this uh, westward expansion as somehow a continuation of the Crusades. Uh, also, wars that Catholics waged against Protestants uh, during and after the Reformation in the 15 and 1600s were also sometimes seen as crusades, and most significantly, wars against the Turks uh, were seen as crusades. So the, the Turkish Empire uh, captures Constantinople in 1453 and quickly expands into Greece and the Balkans and the various wars that Christian states undertook to try to roll back uh, the Turkish uh, expansion were sometimes uh, declared to be crusades. And uh, most of them were 
unsuccessful in this era, but uh, the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, in which Spain and Venice together, allied as crusading Christians, uh, defeated the Turkish fleet, was arguably the last great crusading victory. Uh, after that, uh, the whole idea of crusading started to, to fade out of European thought, and by 1700 or so, uh, crusading is simply no longer part of how people uh, generally see the world and see their, their mission uh, when they go out to fight or to conquer in the world. Another important legacy of the Crusades is the great expansion of the idea of indulgence. Uh, so remember, <clears throat> as I said in, in Lecture 5, uh, an indulgence begins simply as uh, an act of penance that can substitute for some other customary act of penance. Uh, a pilgrimage might be uh, one form of indulgence, and taking up the cross and going on crusade was always considered to be an indulgence. However, the notion of indulgence necessitated, for one thing, a closer examination of individual personality and psychology. Uh, as thousands of people would come back from crusades, clergy had to decide whether and how to accept that crusade mission as an indulgence, and exactly what that meant. If it meant that they were to be uh, given a pass on future sins, what if they came back and committed adultery or murder, as many of them did? Uh, were they still to be held uh, blameworthy? And, uh, and how did you know whether their taking of the cross was actually sincere, and whether it was really for religious reasons, or if it was simply a way of escaping responsibilities at home or uh, indulging in, in violence and pillaging. So the, the need to examine the consciences and the motives of crusaders after they had taken part in crusade was uh, a great spur towards the development of the philosophy of the individual and the examination of personality and character which, of course, at the same time was becoming uh, more and more sophisticated in the art and literature of the time, in the, the chanson de geste and the, uh, the, the epic poems of that time, which examined the complexities of character and motivation and personality. Indulgence also uh, grew to the point of becoming a major problem in the Western church. So... Uh, so first, uh, the Crusades were presented as an indulgence in the sense that if you took up the cross and went on crusade, you were excused from any other acts of penance. Uh, however, many people who might be old or infirm uh, couldn't go on crusade, so uh, instead you could somehow contribute, you could give material, give money uh, to support uh, crusading and that could also be an indulgence. And by 1500 or so, this maneuver was also being applied to other acts in support of the church. The uh, Fifth Lateran Council wanted to raise money in the 1510s to help uh, expand and rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, and the church declared that donating to support 
uh, the building of a new house of worship at the Vatican would also count as an indulgence. Uh, and mostly uh, Dominican uh, friars were sent out to s basically sell indulgences, to offer this, uh, this favor from the church in return for donating for the fund to build St. Peter's. And this was what was going on in Germany in 1517 when some German peasants uh, went to Father Martin Luther in Wittenberg and showed him one of these uh, indulgence documents and asked whether or not this was legitimate. So the uh, expansion of the practice of indulgence and its growing uh, prominence in Western Christian practice uh, is actually what ended up sparking the Protestant uh, Reformation. So there is a connection running here right from the Crusades to Luther and the birth of Protestantism. So these are some of the, the actual legacies uh, of, of crusading in, uh, in Europe and the Middle East. Uh, but probably its biggest impact has simply been in the way it's been remembered. And as I said, how, it's been how they, the crusades have been used as, as a symbol of one thing or another, either Christian virtue or Christian depravity uh, or... Uh, the darkness of the Middle Ages, or the uh, heroic virtue of, of chivalry, or uh, the victimhood of Islam. Uh, in one way or another, uh, it's, been, it's been used as this kind of uh, political uh, magic wand. If you were to ask the Muslim world in the 18th century or the early 19th century, what they thought about the Crusades. First and foremost, they would look back at the Crusades as a fairly minor series of wars that Islam had won. There weren't necessarily all that many hard feelings because the uh, European barbarians who had come into uh, the Middle East had been defeated and eventually sent back. Muslim chroniclers tended to see the Crusaders mostly as barbaric, and they did celebrate Saladin as a significant uh, Muslim hero, a very pious and virtuous man who had committed himself to recapturing uh, Jerusalem and reversing uh, the Crusades. However, he wasn't nearly as big uh, a celebrity in Islamic literature or art or popular culture as Baibars. And Baibars was the one who had really saved the Islamic world from the much bigger threat of the Mongols. Uh, so Baibars was the traditional superstar. Saladin was, uh, you might say, a sort of secondary uh, Islamic hero. He was spoken of very positively in literature. Uh, but he actually, in many ways, was a bigger hero and a bigger celebrity in Christian memory uh, because the Crusades were a much bigger, more significant event uh, from the Christian point of view. It was sort of the first uh, unexpected, uh, surprising extension of Latin Christian society outside of Europe. And Saladin was cast as sort of the, um, the honorable non-Christian opponent uh, who uh, had displayed Christian knightly virtues despite being an infidel. Uh, 
a story circulated in the late Middle Ages that was commonly repeated that, that Saladin had actually secretly converted to Christianity on his deathbed. Uh, that's not true, or certainly there's no evidence that that happened. Uh, that's the sort of thing that many Christians have said through the years uh, when they have an opponent that they kind of like. They'll reconcile those ideas in their mind by saying that he or she secretly converted to Christianity in their last moment. Uh, and Saladin was sort of uh, raised to this special privileged place in Christian memories of the Crusades. Uh, there were many depictions, for example, in medieval churches of imaginary battle scenes with Saladin and Richard the Lionheart facing off against one another on the field of battle, uh, when in fact that never happened. They never saw each other in person. Uh, but uh, they were sort of cast side by side as examples of this great medieval ideal of the chivalric ruler, really. If one goes to Saladin's mausoleum today, which is a very nice, uh, you know, elegant building uh, built uh, in the, the, the 12th century, the very elaborate, beautiful carved marble sarcophagus that you see inside was a gift donated by Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. <laughs> so it was actually uh, Kaiser Wilhelm who visited the tomb of Saladin and said, this is not grand enough, it needs uh, some greater monument in stone. Uh, and this uh, is representative of how Saladin came to be sort of more of a legendary figure to the West than he was to the East. The celebration of the Crusades as demonstrations of Christian self-sacrifice and heroism, this continued more or less in the 15 and 1600s. But in the 1700s, during the so-called uh, Age of Enlightenment, uh, they came to be uh, denigrated more and more and cast instead as a symbol of medieval uh, superstition, uh, barbarity, uh, xenophobia. 18th century polemicists like Voltaire cast uh, the, the Crusaders as violent bigots, uh, which, of course, is... is not without its basis in fact, but it was a sort of 180 degree reversal from the way the Crusades had been celebrated in previous centuries. And so the perception of the Crusades changed dramatically in that period, mainly because of Europeans' re-evaluation of itself and of its own history. In the 19th century, they came to be romanticized again by authors like Walter Scott, uh, who uh, liked to evoke uh, romantic notions of, of the Middle Ages and the sort of adventure and uh, nobility of that sort of lost world of, of medieval Christendom. Uh, so in some ways, uh, the Crusades came back into vogue in a more kind of sanitized and domesticated uh, form. They then again were taken up and celebrated in a slightly different way in the late 19th century by European imperialists, particularly French imperialists. So the French uh, were the main, uh, most uh, important protagonists of the Crusades, and they also were the leading edge 
of European colonization of the Islamic Middle East and North Africa in the late 1800s. It's the French who colonize Algeria and Tunisia and later uh, Lebanon and Syria. And so French imperialists, again, revive the Crusades in a different way by, uh, by casting themselves as successors of the Crusaders, not because they were uh, religious Christians out to capture Jerusalem, but because they were bringing civilization to the Middle East. So as they saw it, the Crusaders were civilized Westerners bringing their superior civilization to the sort of barbaric and benighted East. Uh, so in this way, crusading became yoked to European imperialism, which in turn was a very immediate, real, powerful uh, phenomenon for Muslim people in the Middle East. And uh, indigenous people in the Middle East and North Africa who despised European imperialism, who saw it as harmful and, and degrading and an insult to their sovereignty, they also reacted against the Crusades and also cast the Crusades as the forerunners of European imperialism. So both secular nationalists and Islamists in the Middle East uh, sort of revived the Crusades for their own purposes, where they might have previously been seen as sort of minor footnotes in history. Now they were again elevated to these sort of major events and all of the brutal deeds uh, of the Crusades in Ma'arat, in Jerusalem, uh, were sort of dragged back into popular awareness as a way of condemning the brutality and the barbarity of imperialistic uh, Europeans, right? And when you look at uh, Western people today in Europe or America and ask them what they think of the Crusades, what you get is uh, a kind of kaleidoscope of different notions. Uh, you might get the romanticism. Uh, you might get the, uh, the sort of celebration of, of chivalric heroes like Richard the Lionheart uh, with a sort of gauzy, uh, you know, uh, haze of legend around them. You might also get the disgust the sense that the Crusades represent the most vile, uh, bigoted, uh, brutal side of Western life, that they represent uh, the worst of the Middle Ages and the sort of brutality uh, of the Middle Ages. And occasionally you might also get uh, a celebration of the Crusades, not as an expedition to capture Jerusalem, but as a project to destroy or defeat Islam, right? This is uh, this is a mode of thinking you might that might you might call that the the Ann Coulter version of the Crusades. We should go into the Middle East and assassinate their leaders and convert them to Christianity. Uh, the Crusades have taken on all of these different shapes and contours as people use them to promote or denigrate one or another. Uh, political project that they see around them in their own time. So in this way, our, our understandings of the Crusades are fragmented and confused by our own politics and by our own standpoints in, uh, in the political and military struggles 
of today. Uh, but what is important to remember are the, a few things I've, I've already mentioned here in talking about the Crusades. The fact that they, uh, that they began by appealing to people's high ideals, by appealing to the sense of protecting the innocent, uh, righting wrongs, uh, making uh, sacrifices of oneself uh, to, to protect others and in service of a great cause, and that along the way they led to what we would consider horrible atrocities, and really what were considered at the time horrible atrocities and horrible violations of the laws of war, but that uh, these atrocities, as we might see them, didn't grow out of some uh, essential desire or, or aim of harming or massacring people, but that they grew out of the experience of war and out of the overriding uh, imperative of capturing and controlling Jerusalem. Jerusalem was always at the center of crusading. Jerusalem as a place and as an ideal was always uh, the heart uh, of the matter. So, so that's sort of a rundown of the crusading movement through the years. And uh, next I will talk specifically about the Templars, which were uh, an outgrowth of the experience of crusading and which have been an object of so much you know, legend and conspiratorial thinking and confusion through the centuries, but which were, in fact, very historically important. So uh, again, if you like these lectures, please look at my Patreon page under Historian Splaining uh, and contribute whatever you might be able to. And if you have subjects or questions you want me to address, uh, please uh, make comments on SoundCloud, or you can email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. Thanks.